Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Well, thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed into part five of our discussion on the existence of God. We have covered so much ground already. If you missed those, again, please go back and listen because they really lay the foundation for what we're covering today. And in general, my goal with these podcasts is kind of twofold. For the Christian, I really want to help strengthen your faith so that you're better positioned to share your faith with others. And then for those who are not Christians, you're not quite there yet, you're, you're on the fence or maybe you're highly skeptical, for you, just something to think about. No pressure. I'm not asking you to trust me. Just throwing some things out there that I think are very intriguing. I don't have any secret formulas. I'm not unlocking some secret hidden code that no one else has discovered until now. No, these are just basic things that anyone can grasp. They're not hidden. They're in plain sight, but you might not be aware of them. It kind of reminds me of all the, uh, the fad diets that have come and gone over the last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, every year, some new discovery comes out with the watermelon diet or the pineapple diet or this diet, the low carbs, the high carbs, the whatever. All these diets, they come and they go, and someone always has discovered something new that we didn't know before. We have unlocked the secret, and then that goes away. My favorite diet is the rotation diet. Every time I turn around, I eat. You know, it works for me. But again, we're not talking about fads here. We're talking about something much more concrete, a lot more important. We have a lot to discuss today. Uh, before we dive in again, please make sure you subscribe to these podcasts so you can be alerted when the new ones come out. And also, please, if you can, leave a five-star review. It helps us reach more and more people, which is what this is all about. So what can you expect today? I will be discussing more evidence for the existence of God from what I call the evidential line of argumentation, and then we will also get into what I'm calling the supernatural line of argumentation. Probably won't make it through in this episode. We will probably stretch it to six episodes and then wrap up for sure at that point. Jumping back into where we left off last time, talking about the evidential line of argumentation. And what I meant by that was the typical evidences that someone might normally bring up when they're discussing the existence of God. Pretty concrete, pretty straightforward. I think you'll totally get it when we resume here. And the important point I made last time was, if you're talking about scientific evidence for anything, especially for the existence of God, you need some criteria. What counts and what doesn't count? If someone says, hey, I want you to help me find some new tennis shoes. Uh, I could really use, use your help. I just, I just don't want to spend too much. Okay, like how much were you thinking? I don't know. But I, just, I just don't want it to be too much. Well, I, I kind of need to know, you know, is 35 too much? Is 150 too much? It's like, I, I don't know. Again, you need some kind of criteria to judge what might count, what might not count. So if they were to say, you know, I really would like not to spend more than 50. If you find something that's amazing, yeah, I could probably spend 70. That would be helpful. You need the criteria established. And I've mentioned in the past, many times I've talked to skeptics about evidence for something, for the existence of God, 
for the inspiration of the Bible. And they've said there's no evidence, but they really don't have the criteria that they're using to judge what counts and what doesn't count. They don't have an example in their mind of what they would expect to see that would qualify. So it's important to know that as we jump into these typical evidences. Now, there are quite a few. We're going to be scratching the surface here, and what I am tending to do with this episode is I'm going to kind of rattle through them relatively quickly. I might pause a little bit to explain a few of these, but I'm not going to be unpacking each of these in great detail. I will do that in future episodes with many of these lines of evidence because they're fascinating and they deserve a little bit more time than we have today. So I'm giving you the overview of these things and I'll give you a lot more meat in the future. So starting to go through this relatively short list for today. We would have, as evidence for the existence of God, the origin of stuff. Now, yes, I just did an entire series on the origin of the universe. I think we had four parts to it, four or five, something like that. There was a lot of information, a lot of ground we covered in that. But the point is, how do you get stuff, matter and energy, if there's no one out there to create the matter and energy? You can talk about it coming from nothing, but then you've just stepped outside of science at that point. There's nothing in science that would indicate something can come from nothing. And if you look at the first law of thermodynamics and all those things, science doesn't support that concept that either something could create itself or that nothing, absolutely nothing, could create something. And if you redefine nothing to be something, then where did that something come from that you are calling nothing? And that's not very logical just to redefine things for your convenience sake, which we've talked about in the previous episode, so I don't want to beat a dead horse there. But this is a huge thing. If there's no God, how did we get in an entire universe from nothing for no reason? Secondly, the fine-tuning argument. I did mention this briefly. When we talked about the origin of the universe, there's a lot of evidence for a supernatural creation of the universe, and those evidences fit in very well when talking about the existence of God himself. The point is, there are so many factors in the universe, so many factors specifically in physics, that are finely tuned, highly tuned, very precise, and if they weren't Right where they are today, life in this universe would not be possible. When you look at all that in aggregation, it gives you evidence that, okay, this isn't an accident. You can't get all these things coming together in just the right way for no reason. It looks like it was set up that way. They call it the anthropic principle. It looks like the universe was finely tuned for life to be able to exist. There are many, many factors We will go over those in detail in future podcasts, and some of them are so highly tuned, the probability of just them individually happening by accident are just astronomical. And again, my faith isn't strong enough to believe that all these things just boom, hey, there was a big bang, and all these these finely tuned factors landed just where they needed to be. Boy, did we get lucky. And again, it leads many to say, well, you have a good point there if this was the only universe then there's no way that that could just happen on its own. It's too much of a coincidence. But 
there are actually millions and millions of universes out there with all different factors, and most of them aren't right for life. And life doesn't exist in those universes, but we happen to be in one where the factors were just right. In fact, if they weren't right here, we wouldn't be here to be talking about it. That's not an answer. That is not a scientific answer to talk about millions of other universes. You can't test that. You can't have evidence that they actually exist. We can't even get outside of our own universe. And even if we thought we were peeking outside of it, seeing something, how do we know that we're not just seeing a different portion of our universe that's wrapped around or whatever it is? It is not a scientific answer to talk about a multiverse. I mentioned that when we talked about the origin of the universe I might revisit that again later. I'll probably be interviewing an astrophysicist and astronomer friend of mine, uh, a couple interviews there to flesh that out even more. But again, powerful evidence that the universe we're in is not an accident when you get into the fine-tuning. We could also talk about the origin of logic, which we have. Why does logic exist? What is it? Why does it exist? It's not a physical thing that you can take into a laboratory and observe. So how did it get here? How did a non-physical thing just show up? Why is it reliable? Why is it consistent? Why is it the same everywhere? And why should we even be beholden to it? Even if it did come out of nowhere for no reason, and even if it's consistent, why should we have to pay attention to it? If you want to tell me I need to be logical in my conversation, you might say that, but you're just as much an accident as I am. Why should I have to do that? You can't use the word should. (laughs) Maybe you would like that, but if there's no God and everything's just particles, you can't tell me what I should and shouldn't do. There's no absolute right and wrong. And again, where do these non-physical laws of logic come from? We talked about that. Also, similarly, the laws of science. We want to use science all the time, and skeptics are so scientific, and Christians just have this blind, wishful thinking faith and all that. Not true at all. Uh, I have an entire talk, an entire book called Faith is Not a Four-Letter Word. I go into that in a lot more detail, but Where do these laws of science come from? They too are non-physical things. So if there was nothing to begin with, how did these laws of science just pop into existence and what did they do when there wasn't anything to work with, no matter and energy? Or maybe the matter and energy came into existence first and they're like, boy, we got all the stuff here, but we don't know what we can and can't do. There aren't any laws of science around to tell us and guide us. I mean, a silly thought. So, well, they must have both come into existence at the same time. Well, that's a coincidence that nothing actually not only produced matter and energy, but it produced the laws of science that would then guide it and be consistent and that we should be beholden to. Again, it just doesn't make any sense, but it would make a lot more sense if there is a God. He's a God of order. He created a universe that operates under the laws of logic and laws of science that he himself created. So, again, that would be evidence for the existence of God. Origin of life. This is massive, huge, huge issue for a secular person, a secular scientist. How did life start? If there is no God, you have to resort to talking about dead chemicals at some point becoming alive. Well, we've got the Miller-Urey experiment back in the 1950s where they were experimenting. They kind of showed what the earth was like almost 4 billion years ago and methane and ammonia and hydrogen and all that and then lightning was striking and then we got these constituents of life, some amino acids, and that shows how life could form billions of years ago on on a primeval earth, right? Well, I've seen the pictures of the Miller-Urey experiment. I give lectures on that. They were not even close to showing how life started. 
Well, but that was back in the 1950s. We've made great advancements by now, right? We are much, much closer to figuring out how life started on its own billions of years ago. No. Now, that's what they will tell you. Oh, we've got all this evidence now and blah, blah, blah. No. The ones who are honest say we're actually further away because the more we're studying the issue, the more we're seeing how complex life truly is and how unbelievable it would be to think dead chemicals are just going to come together and all of a sudden they're alive and they can copy and reproduce themselves. I'll do an entire podcast on that, maybe a series on that in the future as well. Again, it would be evidence that God supernaturally created something that to us it looks like there's no way nature can do that. Also, the complexity of life, the complexity of things that are living, all life is very, very complex. Some life forms are not as complex as others, but they're all complex. There is no such thing as a simple cell. You'll hear that in school and in the textbooks, and I, I, I kind of get it, but they shouldn't say it's a simple cell. It's not. It's unbelievably complex, even though there are other things that are much, much, much more complex. There's no such thing as a simple cell. So when you're looking at the complexity of life, uh, living things have DNA. I will be hitting that topic big time later. I, I have a number of talks on DNA. It will make your head explode in a good way. It'll put a big smile on your face and you'll be thinking, oh my word, I had no idea it was that complex. That is fascinating. There is no way particles banging together in nature over time could create DNA, this information storage system. Again, my faith is not strong enough to believe particles undirected just banging into each other, interacting, could eventually create the DNA that we see today. I will definitely go into that in more detail later. We also have simple things, simple things like metamorphosis. A caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Isn't that cool? We have all seen documentaries and videos on that. It's, it's cool to watch. But unfortunately, we watch that and think, oh, that's really cool. And then we say, hey, where do you want to go for lunch? And then we go on with our day. We go on with our lives. Wait a minute. I'd say, back up a second. Did you really see this thing? Think about this thing. I will be talking about metamorphosis in much more detail in an episode in the future as well. I mean, you have to think this through. Again, it was talking about evidence for God and design in general. At some point in evolutionary history, there had to be some creature that was not a caterpillar. But it eventually evolved into what we call a caterpillar. And that caterpillar would just reproduce itself and make other caterpillars. But at some point in evolutionary history, it had to start changing where it would get to the point where it would create a sleeping bag basically around itself and it would melt its body down into goop, sit there in a sleeping bag for a while, and then eventually come out of that sleeping bag and develop as a butterfly, a completely different creature, different features and functions and all these things. How did that evolve one piece at a time, undirected? It's just mutations. You know, the caterpillar was just copying itself, and when it copied its DNA, it go, oops, 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 kept making copying errors, mutations, and then it got better and better and turned into a beautiful butterfly that could fly. It just, how did that happen a step at a time? The caterpillar learns how to melt itself down and now it's goop sitting on the ground. It would have to then develop a sleeping bag. Maybe it did the sleeping bag first. It's like, that's cool. I don't know what to do with it, but there it is. If it just 
develop a sleeping bag around itself, it probably can't reproduce. And if it melted itself down in that bag, it's done. You think it through. It cannot evolve one step at a time like that. And again, we'll be taking a look at that as an example in the future. And there are many, many, many more examples that are just fascinating that to me scream design, scream purpose, and to me scream beauty, which beauty doesn't really even make sense if particles are just banging together, but we'll talk about that in the future as well. We could also look at the origin of information. All living things consist of information. Information drives life. If you take a look at a book, paper and ink. You can store a lot of information in a book. Uh, You can store even more information on a thumb drive, metal, plastic, and a few other things. It does an even better job of storing the information. And then a computer hard drive, a portable hard drive, two terabyte or whatever it might be, you can store even more information on that. Again, metal and a few other parts. In each of those cases, those physical materials do a great job of storing information. But in none of those cases did those materials create the information. The paper and the ink didn't write the book. An author did. The uh, thumb drive did not write Microsoft Office software. Programmers and computer people did. In each of these cases, you can always, always, always trace the information back to an intelligent source. Every single time, without exception. Now you look at your DNA, which I mentioned, DNA does an even better job of storing information, much better than books and thumb drives. But the physical characteristics of the DNA did not create the information that is sitting there. It makes sense logically that you could trace that information, which is much, much, much more complex and greater in volume. You could trace that back to an intelligent source because that is our experience in every other situation. Why would we all of a sudden go to a totally different explanation here unless it's just what you want to do? You don't want to go to a creator because then maybe he sets the rules and you don't like that idea. So all of a sudden you're going to do a 180 and say, no, no, no longer an intelligent source here. That just happened by accident. Just particles banging over uh, together over time can create all that information, information storage systems. Well, again, wait till we get to talking about DNA and seeing how the information is stored there. It will blow you away. Another line of argumentation for the existence of God. The origin of pink and blue. Okay, here's what I mean. So, according to the secular ideas that we learn in grade school, junior high, high school, college, uh, state universities, 3.8 billion years ago, dead chemicals came together to form a living cell. I'm going to skip that challenge. I mentioned it already, but we'll give them that. Fine, you got a living cell. That cell, they believe, knew how to copy itself. So it made another cell. Now you have two cells sitting there. And these cells copied themselves again. So each of the two cells copied themselves. Now you have four cells. This is called asexual reproduction. Asexual meaning non-sexual. Asexual reproduction. The cells just copy themselves. Well, that kept going in evolutionary history for millions and billions of years. These cells just copying themselves. At some point, they had to switch from just copying themselves to making a pink and a blue one, meaning a version now each of which will only confer half of the genetic information they have 
to try to procreate life. So the pink one gives half, the blue one gives half, and they have to be together in the same area and they have to contribute it in an environment where it's protected and it can develop from there. That process is what we call sexual reproduction. And it is very, 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 very complex. Lots of steps there. How did that evolve? One piece at a time over evolutionary history. It can't. You need all of the steps there to have sexual reproduction the first time. If you don't have it the first time, you're done. You can't reproduce. You can't evolve. You can't wait for millions of years as more mutations happen and you got two of the steps and then you got four of the steps and then five and then eight and then, no, you need all of them. It is an unbelievably complex issue and it is a problem that virtually no evolutionist addresses. They don't even like to talk about it or acknowledge it. Some have acknowledged it, say, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a tricky one. <laughs> even Richard Dawkins, one of the leading evolutionists and, and atheists, said, yeah, may, maybe someday he'll tackle that, but not now. Uh, I'll get to that in more detail in the future. Then we have the origin of consciousness. Okay, so you got a Big Bang, supposedly, 13.8 billion years ago, and it produces hydrogen, helium, maybe a little bit of lithium. That's their story. So now you've got hydrogen, helium, and maybe a little bit of lithium interacting with each other, and they keep interacting and interacting and interacting, and eventually they form groups of particles that are aware of themselves, and they start formulating opinions about themselves and about others, and then you even get to the point where you have some particles that have come together who actually think that these other groups of particles that we have named the Green Bay Packers, they're actually the best football team that's ever existed. Now, why do the one set of particles think that about those other particles? Because the first set of particles are living on some dirt that other people say the larger area, they've named it Wisconsin. And so a lot of the other particles that are in that area look at this other group of particles called the Packers and think that they're the best. And just, how does that happen? How do particles start being aware of themselves and having opinions and thoughts. And then you have groups of particles which can also explain the history of all the other particles. And they can even make hospitals and cell phones and all these things. Isn't that pretty cool? Step me through that. Hydrogen and helium banging together, turning into us today. Don't just wave your hand and say, you know, over time. No, tell me the processes. And also then the origin of absolute morality. Why is it that no matter where you go on the planet, everyone just seems to already know you can't just shoot someone because you don't like their hat? They seem to know that murder is wrong. Now, some people will do it anyway, but most people who commit murder, they'll admit, yeah, I know it was wrong, but they wanted to do it anyway for whatever reason. There's a very, very, very small percentage of people who actually murder someone else and they don't even see it as being wrong. Something is wrong with the wiring in their brain. Something has gone awry. That's a small percentage. And we can see there's something wrong there. The norm is that we recognize murder is wrong. Why is that? If there's no God and particles are banging together, how is it that they have this intrinsic knowledge that murder is wrong? makes a lot more sense that they are created in the image of God God is love. It's a violation of his standard to be killing each other. And he has actually instilled that law of morality inside every single human being. That makes a lot more sense than we're just particles banging together and we just all coincidentally happen to agree that murder is wrong. That makes no sense. We'll get to that in more detail in the future as well. 
Now, all of this evidence leads to logical, rational, or rational conclusion of a super intelligence, but not necessarily the God of the Bible. I mean, maybe it's super advanced aliens out there. Theoretically, could be. What if there are aliens that are so powerful, so smart, they could create life on our planet and do all that? Theoretically, you'd have to say, yes, that would be a possibility. But you're kicking the can down the road. You're pushing the, the problem further out. Where did those aliens come from? How did they get so super smart? You, you're just moving it one notch, one level. That's all you're doing. Now, you probably heard of Dr. Francis Crick. Yeah, co-discoverer of the DNA molecule. Brilliant, brilliant scientist. Uh, but he was also an atheist. When he saw how complex DNA was, initially he thought, well, you know, it evolved here on Earth. Then he realized there's no way, absolutely no way. He could see it was designed, and he came to the conclusion DNA was designed. But wait a minute, he's an atheist, but he can see design. So he decided it was advanced aliens somewhere else out in the universe that created life in seed form, put it on spaceships, and flew it to the earth, and it grew from there. That's called panspermia. That was his belief. Did he conclude that because he wasn't very smart? No, the guy was brilliant, much smarter than I am. He didn't lack knowledge. He lacked wisdom. The Bible says that the fear of God is beginning wisdom. He didn't fear God. He didn't even believe in God. But he could see design. So he went with the route of just saying, ah, oh, there's aliens out there who, who did it. Okay, you can do that if you want. But my question is, what evidence do you have that was actually super intelligent aliens? What is the evidence? Uh, you might want to believe that. That's fine. But what is your evidence that that's actually true? As I don't see any. And we'll talk about that in the future as well. Here's an analogy I came up with I think should be a little bit helpful. Let's say you walk into a room and you see a cake sitting on a pedestal. You would instantly know somebody made the cake. Um, you could get up to a closer, see how many layers there are, what kind of frosting was used. Those details would further confirm somebody made the cake. Um, but you could look at those details all day long and they would never tell you who made the cake, why they made the cake, what they want you to do with the cake, and what they want you to do when you're done doing whatever they want you to do with the cake. You can't get that from looking at the physical constituents of the cake. Now, if the baker of the cake left you a note, then you could know. You might say, hi, my name is Susie. I made the cake for you. Go ahead and have a piece and then just walk away when you're done. I will clean up afterwards. You could know that if the baker of the cake left you a note. Well, guess what? There is so much evidence in this universe that the universe and life itself, there's no way. It's an accident. There's so much evidence of design, but you could look at those details all day long, all life long, and they would never tell you who created the universe, why they created the universe, why you're here, what they want from you, and what happens to you when you die. You can't get that from looking at dirt and DNA. The only way you would know the answer to that question would be if the creator of the universe left you a note. And guess what? That's what the Bible claims to be. It claims to be a message from the one who created everything. It says, hello, I'm the one who created all this. Here's why. Here's what happened to it. Here's my plan to fix it. Here's what I want from you. And here's what happens to you when you die. And that message can actually be backed up. We'll get to that in, in a bit. 
It's interesting that all belief systems require faith. Even, even atheists have faith that God doesn't exist. An informed atheist will admit, no, I can't prove that God doesn't exist. I just don't think there's any evidence, so I lack a belief in the existence of God. But they won't say they can prove God doesn't exist. They don't try. They realize you can't prove that. So by faith, they believe that God doesn't exist. Hebrews chapter 11 in the Bible says, faith is required. Uh, anyone who comes to God must come to him believing that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We'll get into that in the future as well. But then they say, yeah, well, we may not have all the answers from science yet, but that's how science works. You discover things and events, you get there. Yes, that is how science works. It's not a guarantee you'll get there, but we do learn more and more things. But what you have to then say for today, since we don't know and we don't have the evidence for it, you, by faith, believe whatever it is that you're talking about. You believe that life formed 3.8 billion years ago from dead chemicals. You don't really have evidence for that yet, certainly don't have proof. So by faith, that's what you believe for now. So faith is not this weakness thing that only Christians have. Faith is something that everyone incorporates into their belief system. I'm going to wind down for now because the last section we will get into is going to be the supernatural line of argumentation, which is fascinating. We'll cover that in the next episode. So again, appreciate you guys hanging in there. I'm not trying to drag this out. There's just so much to cover, and I think it's a lot of fun. So we'll wrap this up for now. Appreciate you listening. And again, my promise is that if you keep focusing on what we're discussing going forward, it won't just be entertaining. It'll be life-changing, including your eternity. So what's up next? Yes, the existence of God, part six. Should be the final episode for now. We'll get into other things in the future. And again, my promise, it will be very logical and rational, a lot of fun. Make sure you come back, bring a friend, and please subscribe. You won't want to miss a single episode. We will see you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.